welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Christ and His Mission, a study of Luke. The name of this sermon is called Hope for the Spiritual Battle, and Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 4, 1-13. Let's join Pastor David now. Amen. Uh, um, spiritual battles, uh, temptation, uh, spiritual warfare, uh, the reality that ultimately our enemy is not of flesh and blood, but of, of the forces of darkness, uh, Satan and, and uh, demonic forces. This is a reality that we see. Biblical uh, Christianity shows that we are navigating everyday life in a war, spiritual war, and we face those battles and challenges and temptations every single day. And and as you navigate your Christian journey, as you're navigating temptation, sometimes it can creep into our hearts the little question, is there hope? Is there hope? Sometimes you wake up and the first thing uh, that you realize is that you're, you're in the heart of a spiritual battle or even a temptation. As you navigate uh, your school or your workplace, as you navigate relationships, as, as you seek to navigate our world, every time you uh, uh, look at your phone, every time you scroll through uh, what, what movie to watch on movie night, you're, you're engaging in spiritual battles and temptation. And there can be times when we wonder, is there even hope to get through these waters untouched? Is there hope to get through these uh, um, waters uh, victorious? And sometimes fighting those battles can feel like... Uh, Swimming with sharks in the water. Remember the movie Jaws? Dun dun. Dun dun. It sometimes spiritual temptation and battles can feel a little bit uh, like the movie Jaws. I remember having seen that movie when I was uh, a kid. And with that in my mind, uh, our family then went on a vacation by the ocean in Florida. And I remember, so here I am, you know, visions of, of shark fins amongst people on the beach and in the water. Hey, David, come on in. The water's great. Just going to hang out by the water fountain back here. You all have a good time. I'll see you when we head back home. You know, there's, um, there was one person in between services after first service. They pulled me aside. Yeah, after I saw that movie, I didn't like take a bath for weeks. <laughs> Sharks in the water. And sometimes navigating temptation spiritual battles. You can slowly and subtly think, man, can I even swim from point A to point B without getting bit or at least chased or wondering, is there, is there even hope? Is there even hope to navigate the temptations and spiritual battles that we face every single day? Well, I want to encourage you, Jesus is no stranger to this battle. Jesus himself is no stranger to temptations. And we get a glimpse in the passage that we're going to look at today Jesus himself, himself, navigating temptation, battling, spiritually so, in the wilderness, face to face with the devil himself. Meet me. Meet me in Luke chapter 4. This is the passage that we're looking at today. Luke chapter 4, as we're navigating through our series, Christ and his mission, this chapter, Luke 4, comes right at the beginning of Jesus' uh, public ministry. His childhood narratives are behind us. He has been baptized. We see the genealogy declaring his sonship. And now he is taking, in a way, his first step into his public ministry. And 
right out of the gates. A battle ensues, a spiritual battle and temptation. And he is battling in the wilderness, face to face, and battling temptation from the devil himself. Look at, look at these first two verses, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, in and around and among the wilderness, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jump down to verse 13. Let's look at the end of this passage that we're looking at today. Verse 13, Luke 4. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So we took a peek at the beginning, we took a peek at the end. What's going on here? What's unfolding? In many ways, uh, the cosmic battle, the ultimate battle, God versus Satan, Light versus darkness, good versus evil. Jesus is going toe-to-toe, face-to-face in the wilderness against the devil. Now, there's a couple phrases that make this... We have, we have to appreciate how high the stakes are for this battle. We'll see that in a couple phrases. And the stakes are high because Jesus is not just battling for his sake. He's doing that. But he's also battling for your sake Because remember, Christ is our representative. He's our substitute. He's navigating this journey, not just for himself, but on your and my behalf. And how he navigates this battle matters for you and for me. Do you see how important this battle is, truly, that he is engaging in? And notice it says that he is in the wilderness. And when you look at that first verse, led by the Spirit, in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by the devil... For those of you who have, who have uh, uh, studied Scripture, known Scripture, when you read some of those phrases, it brings your mind back, doesn't it, to the Old Testament. This is not the first time, in this case, a people group were led by God in the wilderness, a place of temptation and trial and testing. And don't think of wilderness um, as lush green trees, you know, cascading waterfalls, animals frolicking and singing to... to uh, it, don't think of wilderness like that. Think of wilderness in the sense of desert, uninhabitable, scorpions, snakes, no water, no food. That's the wilderness. This is where Jesus is. And we remember that phrase in the wilderness. We remember, wait, Israel has gone on this journey. That they did not wander for 40 days, but 40 years that they were in the wilderness, remember, delivered up out of Egypt by God in the Exodus, and God led them by a a, a pillar of fire and a cloud, and they are led through the wilderness, this proverbial place of tempting and trial and testing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's the true Israel. He's re-walking that path. He's retreading those steps on your and my behalf. He's reliving that. He's the true Israel. And notice he also goes face-to-face, toe-to-toe, against the devil himself. Now, you might, it's interesting to note, when you go from in the Bible, beginning to end, this is only the second time in the Bible that Satan has gone face-to-face with a human being. Only the second time, face-to-face, toe-to-toe. 
Guess when the first time was? In the garden. Remember last time this happened, it was Adam and Eve going toe-to-toe against the devil himself. And here we have Jesus for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Verse 3, the devil said to him, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, a battle ensuing. Do you see what's happening? Do you see the scene that is being set? Jesus is the greater Adam, the second Adam, the one who would also battle, ultimately so, the ultimate evil one. Now remember, Satan's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere present. Satan is not. But he has forces of darkness and evil that go out for him on his behalf. He does have a measure of power, but not ultimate power like our God. So to go face to face with the head honcho, if you will, of the forces of darkness is no small thing. He's the second Adam. He's retreading those steps. He's reblazing that path. He's battling, not just for, her, for his sake, but for your sake. Now jump again to verse 13 when it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. At the end of this battle, you see, if you will, the shark submarining again. Dun, dun, you know, the fin goes underneath the water. And for the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we don't see the devil face to face and toe to toe like we see him here, but we see the effects of the forces of darkness nonetheless. For the rest of the book, we start to see, and the rest of the story of Scripture, if you will, we start to see that uh, um, Jesus and his followers and his disciples encounter demons that Jesus casts out. They encounter sickness and brokenness that Jesus heals. They encounter uh, opposition and forces of evil, people trying to undo them or to thwart their purposes and their plans. Jesus navigates those and triumphs over those. Do you see what's happening? There's sharks in the water. <laughs> and Jesus is navigating that. And, and Satan, the devil, is kind of the, the sinister puppeteer, the, the crooked hand inside the glove, the shark who is waiting until the opportune time, who would in an ultimate sense, uh, send his final volley, the ultimate blow at the cross itself. He is this ultimate enemy. And Jesus is going toe-to-toe with him in this temptation. Three rounds in this fight, if you will. Three rounds. And firstly, we see that Jesus is tempted to fulfill his longings apart from God. Jesus is tempted to fulfill his greatest needs, his greatest desires, his greatest longings apart from or outside of or away from God himself. Now, look at this. Look at this, verses 3 and 4. The devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And in doing this, do you see what's happening? Now remember, uh, Jesus has just been without food for 40 days. I go like four hours, and it's hard enough. And appreciate this. If someone said to me, hey, turn this stone into bread, kind of helpless there, that's not really a temptation for me. I can't even do that. But Jesus can. Can you imagine having the power to turn anything you wanted, this pulpit, into a piece of chocolate sculpture if you're hungry. He's got the ability to do it. 
See, even more so, Jesus is tempted in every single way, as you and I are, every single way. Any kind of way that you've been tempted in your life, Jesus has been tempted in the same way also. And in a unique way, if he has the very ability and power to take a stone and turn it into bread to satisfy his own hunger, in a way, how much greater is the temptation for Jesus? Turn this stone into bread. Satisfy your cravings. Satisfy your longings outside of dependence on God. Do you see what Satan's doing? He's repackaging the same old trick that he tried in the garden. Remember that forbidden fruit? Oh, it looks so good for food. Delightful to the eyes. Held out for Adam and Eve. Won't you take? Won't you take and eat? When you partake of it, you will be like, you'll be like God. All of, your, all of your longing will be satisfied. Take a bite. Take a bite. And here we have Satan. Again, repackaged, different setting, slightly different way. Turn this stone into bread. Satisfy your longings. And one of the tactics Satan uses to tempt us is to look to the greener grass on the other side. That we can start to think to satisfy the God-designed, God-given, natural, legitimate longings that we have in our lives to try to satisfy those outside of God's provision, to try to satisfy those outside of God's means, to try to satisfy those outside of God himself. It's one of the ways Satan tries to tempt us and allure us. And one of the reasons it's so compelling is that Satan is tapping into God-given needs. We need food. We need relationship. We need connection. We need identity. We need purpose. We need hope. Uh, we need, because we are designed by God in his image, there are designs and needs that God has engineered into you and I that are designed to be fulfilled by him, in him, through his means, through his ways, according to his design. And Satan takes all of those things and says, won't you look elsewhere? Won't you look outside of his design? Look to the greener grass outside of God's engineered orchestration for you and I. That's one of the ways Satan tempts us, or he can tempt us by growing bored with God's design, or growing bored with God's provision, becoming oh so familiar with it that Satan starts to tempt us. Oh man, wasn't, wasn't life before God a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit more vibrant? Wasn't true life? Didn't you, you kind of gave it up when you came to Jesus, didn't you? Remember your life before what if we went back? Do you see what Satan's doing there? It reminds us a lot of the, the scene in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Let me read it. Listen on as I read. Uh, this is uh, describing God's people Israel in the wilderness. It says that now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. They're hungry. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat, they say. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. What a thought. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Oh, do you remember the leeks of Egypt? Remember those? Don't we miss those? We do, don't we? We're hungry and we're grumbling. But now, Numbers 11, 4, 6, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Do you remember the scene? 
God miraculously every single day is providing manna for them to eat. Food in the wilderness, that doesn't happen. God's providing it every single day. Breakfast, manna. Lunch, manna. Dinner, manna. Snack, manna. Don't gather it for tomorrow because it's going to be there waiting for you fresh. Manna. And God's people are saying, oh my gosh. Remember the fish, the meat, garlic, the leeks? And it was free. Yeah, it was free because you were in slavery. Remember that? Remember all that food in Egypt that you had that you were eating while you were slaves? And how quickly their hearts have gone back. Oh, man, isn't God's provision so boring at times? Can't we just go back? Do you see what Satan's doing? Reeling us in. The fin coming closer. Offering us the same temptation, oh, that we would satisfy our longings, make this stone bread. Bread. Look outside of God's design. Or you might get bored with God's design. You see what Satan's doing? He's tempting again the same way he tempted in the garden. He's tempting again the same way he tempted Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus, the second Adam and the true Israel, in this moment, resists the temptation. And he responds to the devil and says, in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he's quoting in, this, uh, in these words, Deuteronomy 8.3, describing this moment in the wilderness that Israel went on. He says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's a way that God shows us, I am your fulfillment all of the longings, all the desires, all the needs that you have either come in me or come from me according to my design and my ways. Don't look to the other greener grass on the other side. Don't become bored with God's provision. He's providing. He's, he's providing for you and me. And Satan says, won't you look elsewhere? Jesus stands victorious. He resists. He resists the temptation and passes the test, if you will. That's the first round. Second round. Second round. Jesus is tempted to get power from sources other than God. First, he's tempted to fulfill his longings outside of God. Now, he's tempted to get power, acquire power, grasp power from sources apart from God or outside of God. Look at these next verses, 5 through 8. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, scrolled him past his eyes in a moment of time, and said to him, to you, this is Satan saying to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If, 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 if you then will worship me, Satan says, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What Satan's holding out is all the power and the glory and the prestige and might of all the kingdoms of the world. He flashes before his eyes, and there's an irony in this offer. Or in Luke chapter 4, just a couple chapters ago, remember in the birth narratives, the angel Gabriel says that this Messiah, this Jesus, would be given the throne of his father David, that he would rule and reign, and his kingdom would have no end. Satan is speaking to the king who all the nations of the world are his anyway, 
And this king would take a path that would lead him to the cross, through the cross, to the tomb, and through the tomb, that he'd be exalted and raised in glory, seated at the right hand of God. Yet Satan offers him an alternate path, that the path that our king Jesus would take is the path of self-sacrifice and substitutionary death. That was the road to his exaltation. Satan says, you know, listen, there's another way. Just worship me. Bow to me. Submit to me. And classic, classic, classic Satan in temptation. He's, he's overselling his authority. <laughs> he's, he's, he's underselling what he will take. He's, uh, um, he's overextending his reach. You see some of the things he says in these verses? Uh, when he takes them up in a moment, uh, I'll give you all, to you I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Well, uh, <laughs> Satan does have a measure of power, but he doesn't have ultimate power. He does have a, a measure of authority, but not ultimate authority. And this is oftentimes what some of the, the idols of power that you and I encounter and you and I face, this is why it's so tempting. Because idols of power often take, now, side note, power per se is not so much the enemy. How we use that power, how we acquire that power, and who we use that power for, that's where snake, Satan can weasel on in. That Satan often offers often offers power for ourselves, power to serve me, power for my benefit. God often lends power, his power, to steward, to steward for the good of others, to steward for the good of a group, to steward for the good of a community, to steward for the good of a region, an area in the world. This is the kind of authority that God lends to us, not that we might serve self, but we might serve others. Satan says, won't you just grasp at mine? Yeah, but if you take the power that God offers, it's going to come through a sacrifice. It's going to come with selflessness. Just, just worship me, Satan says. And Jesus resists. And he says, and he responds, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Reminds us of Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14. That says, it's the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name only shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Jesus stays faithful, faithful to his true God, where Israel wandered and turned to other gods, faithful to our true king, where you and I take our eyes off of the king and look to other lords, other masters, other gods that we think will supply all the power that we need. We think we'll supply all of the path before us. Jesus resists temptation. He stands firm and stands victorious with his eyes on God the Father. First temptation, he's tempted to fulfill his longings apart from God. Second temptation, he's tempted to get power from sources other than God, in this case, Satan himself. Third temptation, he's tempted to test the very protection and goodness of God's character. Now Satan just goes straight after the very character of God and essentially asks Jesus, won't you put it to the test? Are you sure he's strong? Are you sure he's good? Listen to what he says in the next few verses, 9 through 12. Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answers him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what's happening here is Satan brings Jesus to the, the pinnacle, the top of the temple, right on the edge. Now, in Jerusalem at the temple, this is the, if there ever was a hot spot of God's protection and provision and guidance, that's what this represented. Jerusalem, the temple, that's where God's provision, his protection, his care, his closeness, his goodness, that's where it all is. And, and, and Satan brings him right to the pinnacle, toss yourself down, throw yourself over. And let's see, let's see, is God powerful? And if he's powerful, let's see if he's willing, is he good? And what Satan's doing, he's, he's using Psalm uh, 91, where he's quoting here. It's a psalm all about the protection and power and goodness of God on behalf of the king, on, on behalf of uh, uh, King David. And it says here, on their hands they will bear you up, these angels, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan is essentially saying, Y'all listen, if he kept King David from stubbing his foot, surely he's going to protect you. You're the son of God. Of course he would protect you, wouldn't he? But the heart behind it is a heart that doesn't trust God's strength or his ability or his willingness or his goodness to protect and to care. So he's tempting Jesus, won't you check? Won't you put God to the test? But catch this, the moment we do that, the moment we say, you know what, God, not so sure about what you're saying about yourself, I better look over here to something else to test you to see if you are who you say you are. Now, in that moment, the moment you look over here, whatever that is, then what are you really trusting? Are you trusting God or are you trusting something else? As if we could take something to compare against God that's more glorious than God, more powerful, more trustworthy, more worthy against the backdrop that we could somehow authenticate God about God. And notice this is different than lament, psalms of lament. There's tons of psalms of lament that are expressions of trust in God that because we trust Him so much, we can bring Him even our complaints even our challenges, our greatest problems, they're prayers. We're turning to God with those things. But this is something different. This is a test. It's a test. Satan is coming from a place of not trusting God's goodness, not trusting God's character. And Satan is essentially saying, Jesus, risk your life to test, to see if God truly is powerful or truly is good. Don't trust him. You better test it. Jesus, by resisting, is essentially responding to Satan, saying, I will willingly offer my life as an expression of trust, not an expression of doubt, knowing and trusting and believing just how true God's power is and just how true God's goodness is and just how deep uh, he, his trustworthiness is that he really is willing to save. That Jesus would obey the Father, catch this, God sends the Son on a path that would lead to the cross. He doesn't force the Son. Jesus goes willingly to the cross. This mutual decision of the triune Godhead, sending of the Father, willingness of the Son to the cross, just putting on display for you and me just how powerful 
in just how good our God truly is. So Jesus resists this third temptation to put to doubt God's power and his goodness. And in all three of these temptations, in all three of these attacks, Jesus stands firm. And that's important, not just for him, but for you. Because he's not just battling for his sake, he's battling for your sake. He is our representative. And if that is true, that means when we ask the question, is there hope? Is there hope to even navigate the waters of temptation that you and I have? Every single day, dozens or even hundreds of times a day, you're going to face little temptations or big temptations along the way. And you might wonder, is there hope to get through these waters unbit or alive? And my friends, that hope, hope for your spiritual battle, is not found in your skillfulness, but Christ's faithfulness. And we see that faithfulness in these verses. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what's unfolding in this moment? That he is the second Adam who stands victorious where the first Adam fell. He's the second Adam who, who resists temptation where our first parents gave in to temptation. He is the true Israel who stayed faithful to God in his wilderness wanderings in times of uh, temptation and trial and testing and difficulty where we faltered and wavered. Even though Israel was faithless, he is faithful. Now, sometimes when we talk about the past, we're reading the Bible, you're reading the Bible and you read uh, some of these passages about Israel or Adam and Eve, and we can subtly, if we're not careful, kind of slip into this, oh man, Adam, Eve, you kind of blew it for the rest of us, you know. If I was in the garden, things would have played out a little bit differently. How obvious, how obvious is it, Adam and Eve? Just the one tree, that's it. God said, eat of everything, just minus this one. How good, that's the exact one that we went for. Why'd you do that? Or we can read some of these passages about Israel and kind of think, Israel, what, what are you thinking? You just got delivered from, miraculously so, from slavery out of Egypt, and now you're turning to other gods, bowing to golden calves, complaining about the menu when every single day you're living a, a mini miracle that God's providing you manna in the desert. You know how easy it is sometimes to read these and think, oh man, what was wrong with them? But do you realize? <laughs> I'm Adam. I'm Israel. They're us. We are them. We are the ones that it, at one moment God provides miraculously and the next moment we're complaining about it. <laughs> at the one moment God uh, provides you maybe a home. The next moment, yeah, but it's broken. Now I've got to fix it. But God provides you uh, a relationship. God provides you a spouse. Incredible. The next moment, yeah, but they got quirks. Or, or God provides you a family and children. What a gift. Oh, yeah, but don't even get me started there. We, we, we turn from what God has provi provided, and immediately we turn to, we are them. And the encouragement is, my friends, that we have a Savior who stands where we fall, who's faithful where we are faithless. And that means that you and I can have hope. We can have hope. Why? You and I can uh, fight the spiritual battles in confidence and in hope, not anxious for our victory, 
but, but confident from his victory. If he stands in our place and if he is our representative, we don't fight our battles from our skillfulness. We fight it from his faithfulness. We fight it from his victory. That we can navigate this every single day journey of temptations knowing that there are sharks in the water. And the encouragement is that I think this passage is less of a how-to passage and more of a hope passage. And what I mean by that is I think Luke 4 is actually less so saying, hey, there are sharks in the water, and Jesus outswam them. So swimming lessons start tomorrow. Dun, dun. And then we get kind of freaked out. I don't know if I can make it through. I mean, Jesus made it through, but I'm not him. I think it's less of a how-to passage, more of a hope passage. That is saying there are sharks in the water. We have to be aware of that. We have to be sober-minded about that. And Jesus outswam them for you. So hop on his back. Abide in him. Remain in him. Stay in him. And even when you don't have the strength to hold on to him, he's going to hold on to you. And that gives us a sense of hope. That gives us a sense of hope to navigate every single day of the dozens of temptations that you and I face and battles that you and I face. Fight from his victory, not for your victory, from your resources and your ability and your skillfulness. And even if, even when, even when we fail, even when we blow it, even when we give in to temptation, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That this is a God of grace, picks us up, who draws us near, who redeems and restores and forgives. That when we fail, we have a Savior who jumps in the water and pulls us back out again. And that means, my friends, you and I can have hope. Not because we're so strong, not because we're so righteous, not because we're so faithful, but because he is strong and righteous and faithful. Let's pray. Father, we, we understand very quickly that we truly need to be saved. To be saved. Lord, we don't navigate this journey needing help from time to time or needing slight assistance from time to time. We need salvation. And Father, I pray that from that place you would strengthen and encourage. I know that I'm speaking to many people who are going to experience nuances of the same spiritual battle in different ways. Maybe some people on Monday are, are re-entering uh, uh, maybe a toxic situation at their workplace and temptations to their left and to their right to dip into, into sub-Christian or unchristian responses. Or, or, or to, to fight evil with evil. Lord, I know I'm speaking to many that every single day are confronted with spiritual battles as we navigate uh, um, media and as we navigate the internet and as we navigate all that is bombarding us every single day. Lord, we are in a battle. We see that. Help us. Bear us up. Carry us through. And may you have all the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.